Hello, and welcome to another episode of Playing in the Sandbox, Conversations in Pedagogy. My name is Katherine Troyer, and I'm delighted, as usual, to be joined by Dr. Lauren Malone. Hi, everyone. So Lauren, will you introduce uh, our topic for today's episode? Absolutely. So today we're going to be talking about uh, games for learning, and this is continuing our overall game-based learning conversation. So just as a reminder of what games for learning is, uh, this is when you're actually taking some game that's just out there in the world and using it to teach a skill set or reinforce a concept in class. So the game itself might not actually have um, any content that is related to what you're teaching, but in some way it helps the students practice what you're teaching. And this is lovely for for those of you that are like not quite ready to, to build your own narrative, right? Because you're not having to build a game, you're not having to test it, it's already been tested, it's tried and true. Um, you're just finding ways to incorporate it. And so I really like personally um, Games for Learning, which you have told me the abbreviation is G4L, which is clever. Um, so this can work pretty much no matter what discipline or field you're coming from, correct? Pretty much, yeah. And and obviously, sometimes you'll have to do um, a little more digging for exactly what you need. Um, not, it's not always uh, right on the surface, uh, one for one sort of analogy with the game, but sometimes it is. And so we'll talk about some of those examples later, but it does work for most most. Um, fields and subjects. Yeah, so prior to the pandemic, there were a lot of the global pandemic, there were a lot of games like pandemic that were like, hee hee hee, wouldn't it be funny if we had a global catastrophe? And how would you avoid that? And everyone was like, I want to play that game. Um, you know, and since then, uh, those game makers have, have been like, oh, I guess I guess actually what we were doing was pretty accurate. So if you're in STEM, there's a lot of games that are going to be about tracing um, the the sort of evolution or pollination out, whatever, that, neither of those are the right words, but for pandemics or viruses or things like that, um, there are lots of, of other games that kind of skirt the line between um, games for learning and, and serious play, which we'll, we'll talk about in our next episode, but there's the March Mammal Madness um, that comes out of Arizona State University, and that's really content specific, but again, it's about brackets, and it's about like having animals battle each other, right? So you can kind of be thinking about like, how do you understand animal survival rates? Well, you can make that into into a game, right? Or you can have, you can find games that are already doing that sort of pitting battle style um, creatures against each other. Absolutely. And if you're in arts, languages, humanities, there's a lot of different, um, a lot of different sort of options for you out there. So um, for art, you've got really, really beautiful board games like Everdale. I'm not familiar with Everdale. What is Everdale? So Everdale is a board game and it sort of feels like, um, I haven't actually played it, so uh, I might be wrong about this, but what it looks like is a beautiful like fantasy world that's kind of uh, adjacent to Redwall. I know that's not what the content is about, right. but it's got like uh, it's got like different animals personified on the cover, um, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And so the covers are gorgeous, um, but the actual game art 
is a part of the game mm-hmm. and people actually collect the Everdale series um, in part because all of the different game pieces are kind of different works of art basically um, and so yeah so there's things like Everdale for art um, there's games like apples to apples which um, you can use all over the place but especially for things like languages where sometimes the tricky part of learning a language is getting down um, some of the nuances of how we talk about things um, and and um, and idioms and expressions and those sorts of things. So using apples to apples and playing it, um, but also if you're teaching um, another language, having your students actually create some sort of apples to apples type game um, to practice. And I've played it with I played it with Taboo um, as well. Oh, yeah. So when I was in Germany studying abroad for the year, our teacher got Taboo Junior because that's about where our level was at, and it was an absolute blast, right? Because again, it's like you said, it's having to think about what words can I use that are not the obvious ones um, to describe this other word. And so there's a lot of those types of games that are perfect for languages. Yeah. And then you've got the humanities. And for the humanities, there's uh, this is where some of the games that you'll be using don't have maybe that one-to-one connection with the content. Um, but there's lots of different examples. And we'll talk about uh, the game Typecast. And we'll also talk about using toys as games um, and what that can look like. In addition to, you know, there being a game that works for nearly every field or discipline, there's also games that work for just about every type of, of skill sets that you're wanting to teach, whether that's writing um, or oral communication, like with the Apples to Apples example, um, or group work. And so one of the games we'll talk about is called Draw Your Own Conclusions, but it really kind of helps to to foster some of the understanding about roles and the function of, of individuals within a larger group. Let's say that I'm listening and I'm like, my gosh, this is <laughs> this is what I'm doing this semester. Like, what do I what do I need to do, Lauren? Like, what how do I scaffold games for learning so that it doesn't just feel like students are like, oh yeah, we just played apples to apples today. I don't really understand what was happening, but that's what we did. Like, how how do we as faculty make it feel meaningful? So there's basically three parts to this, which is build up the gameplay and the reflection. And so for build up, first of all, letting the students know that they're going to be playing games in class, um, I think that takes away some of that, oh, we just played apples to apples, because if you prep them beforehand and let them know beforehand, then um, I feel like that comes a lot of times because students are so busy and they have so many demands on their time that they get to class and they're playing games and they're like, I could have been working on calculus homework, right? So letting them know, hey, we're going to be playing Pandemic or we're going to be playing Everdale in class and here's what we're going to be focusing on. Here's the kind of thing that I want you to pay attention to um, and then uh, answering any questions that they have. Um, So double checking with them to make sure they understand why you know, the next class or the next week, they're going to be actually engaging in gameplay. And then the gameplay itself, and this is really important. Um, this is where uh, playing games yourself kind of comes in, because it's really important in terms of timing. Forbidden Island got me personally <laughs> um, before. And so um, depending on how long your class is, whether you're teaching a 50-minute class, 75-minute class, three-hour class once a week, uh, you're going to have to sort of manage everyone's gameplay. Um, and some people, you know, don't play games at all, but by golly, 
they get instructions. You know, they understand any instruction set that's given to them so they can get their group off and running in five minutes. And then there are people who either play games and want to argue about the instructions and what each instruction means, or people who are maybe kind of in the middle, don't really play games too much, um, but they're going to take a little bit more build-up time. So if you can, play your game before yes. um, you get to the actual game playing class. Yeah, I think the worst thing you could do is open the the shrink wrap on the box in front of everyone, and that's the first time you've ever like touched the game. <laughs> because it's going to take you a little bit of time to figure it out. Um, and I really, I think it's really important what you said about the different level of skills for, for our players, because that also can be impacted by the game. So um, I recently tried DOS, which is the sequel to Uno, and it was, the rules were really very unclear. So even though we all knew how to play games, we've been playing games forever, we constantly had to kind of refer back because there was something glitchy about the, the actual game itself, in, in my opinion. So th that's something to keep in mind. So before we get to the third part of scaffolding, would you suggest then um, that if you introduce a game that you should allow for at least two or three over the semester, maybe in the class, rounds of gameplay so that they can kind of get the hang of it? Or I guess I'm just worried, like, it's not probably a good idea to introduce a whole bunch of different games in one semester, right? Sure. Yeah. And it depends on, so it depends on what you're doing, right? Um, and what skill set you're practicing, but it also depends on what they are, um, what their kind of level of interest is. And so like for my composition class, I used a bunch of different games. So some teams played apples to apples, some teams attempted to play Forbidden Island. As I said, <laughs> we did not have time for that. It's way too complex to get going in a 15 minute class. And some of them played some retro board games like, um, what is it, Mystery Date or whatever mm -hmm. it's called. <laughs> um, sorry, those sorts of things. And so if you're doing something like that, where the goal for them was to understand different ways that games are set up, it's pretty okay to introduce a bunch of different ones because really what they're looking at is the mechanics of different games. And so what is the what is the part I play as a player? How do I win? And those sorts of things. But if you're really trying to get them good at a game um, in order to reinforce a concept, so something like Pandemic where they're playing um, to kind of understand an idea, then yeah, it's probably a good idea to not have, you know, every single um, contagion-based game uh, <laughs> introduced in one semester and just to stick with, with the one. So now that we've played the game in our class, um, what is the last step in the scaffolding process? Some sort of reflection. And it doesn't necessarily mean reflection in the sense that they're writing, okay, here's what I did today. Here's how I felt about it. Here's what I learned. Um, it can be an assignment or a short activity where they get to put something into practice. Um, and so something that carries over into uh, what it is they're supposed to be learning or the concept you're reinforcing. And so basically what you want to do is bookend the gameplay with here's why we're doing this. And so if you just leave it at them playing the games, then in the moment, they might you know, be fine with it and they might understand, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be learning. But then if you never go back to it, then how are you 
kind of talking about that concept or that skill set for the rest of the semester and and the game might um, seem a little bit disjointed. So there needs to be that period of some sort of reflection or um, reinforcement in the context of the classroom rather than in the context of the game. That makes perfect sense. So what Lauren and I thought we would do next is go through, we have about five sort of cases of specific games that have worked for us uh, in specific contexts. And we'll kind of talk to you about what issues they addressed, um, what what they kind of achieved and, and how we built in reflection moments. Because there's the hardest part about uh, games for learning is really picking which game, right? Because there are just thousands of fantastic games out there and, and they all have the potential um, to do things depending on what you want. So we thought we would just give you some examples. So Lauren, would you tell... I'm not familiar actually with Typecast. So can you tell us about Typecast and how you used it? Absolutely. So Typecast is a card game. And what you have is basically a bunch of cards of people. Um, so there's their picture um, on the on the front of the card. And usually it's their picture in um, sorts some sort of, uh, I don't know, real life setting. So it's not something where they're posed. It's not like a glamour shot. It's like them standing outside of uh, Krispy Kreme or something like that. <laughs> um, and so you've got their picture. And then on the back, it asks you um, three questions. And um, everybody's got a different kind of set of questions, but it'll ask you something like, what is this person's favorite smell? What's their favorite book? What occupation do they have? And basically, you're supposed to judge a book by its cover. That's the whole mm. game. And so you're supposed to try and guess um, from the picture what um, what these things are, um, for that person. And so I use this game in my business communication class. One of the, um, things that we talked about in the last podcast, for those of you who might not have gone back and listened to it yet, is that game-based learning of any type, whether you're doing serious games, games for learning, gamification of your class, it needs to address something in your class. So it's not just something you're dumping in there, uh, to be fancy. Um, there should be a problem or an issue that you're trying to in some way address with game-based learning. So for this class specifically, um, I was trying to address teaching implicit bias um, and teaching bias in general uh, without preaching. So one of the things that I noticed was the students where we were getting stuck on some of the things like accessibility and um, checking for bias because a lot of the students were getting defensive and they were seeing this kind of lecture or two days of lecture as uh, attacks against themselves Mm -hmm. as people. And so I needed a way to bring in that conversation without automatically getting students' defenses up. And so Typecast actually ended up being a really good way to do that. And so we didn't play the game. Um, we played the game as normal, but then we uh, we also talked about it in the class. So each group got five cards and they played the game. So um, you would have one person who can see the back of the card who's holding it up and then the rest of the group would guess. Um, and so there are a lot of things that came up. And so one of the things that I remember most clearly was one group had a card with a woman who's in her thirties or forties um, on it. And one of the things they were supposed to be guessing was her favorite smell. Mm. And one of the guys said lemon, because like 
household cleaners smell like women oh so like gosh. maybe <laughs> oh my and gosh. so yeah and so and it was it was definitely a moment where he himself pulled back and was like and it was a moment of realization of oh oops and so when we started talking about it when we came together as a class I asked some of them to share um and I let them pick but I asked some of them to share um some of the things that came up and that was definitely one of them of um of, you know, I kind of assumed this because this is the role that I've, you know, been socialized to think of people as. And so that was, that was part of it. It also, um, it also kind of went with team building. And so um, my business comm groups are each running their own business for the semester. Uh, And so this was an interesting team building exercise. But the way I built in reflection for this was actually through having them put together audience portfolios. And so one of the things that I asked them to do next was to take all of their uh, cards and think about ways that their company might serve that person. And so what is that person going to get out of it? And this was another way of thinking about bias because it took away sort of the the hot button issues like bias about race or gender or sexuality. Um, And it was more of our own biases in terms of just like how we grew up and that sort of thing because um, another group had a company that was a sporting complex and they did like personal training um, and club sports and that sort of thing. And they had a really hard time because one of their cards, um, the girl on there looked kind of like a skater girl. And so they were coming up against this idea of, you know, there's the jocks, there's the skaters, there's the X, Y, and Z. And so they were kind of coming up against that and saying, well, our our company isn't made for, for this type of person. And so we had to kind of work through, well, how do you know? And why might this person be looking into your company? You said you offer personal training. Why might this person be coming to you for personal training, for example? And so it became a good way of, um, of just reinforcing the concept that like everybody has, has biases that we need to interrogate um, and think about, especially when we are in any type of communication situation, because those can come across in our communication. Out of curiosity, does Typecast give you that those people's actual answers or is the whole point? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yep. It gives you, yeah. So it gives you their answers and some of them, you know, it's what everybody guesses. So there'll be, you know, a, a college age black student holding a basketball and they'll guess that coach Carter is his favorite movie and that'll be it or something like that. But a lot of times it's things that are almost impossible to guess like the favorite smell one. And it is because it is supposed to start that conversation of, okay, Like, why do we assume what we assume about people? I love this idea of using typecast. I've never um, played the game before, but I have played some games that I thought would and did work really well with my students for reinforcing that team building and just sort of the group work dynamics. Um, And so there are a couple of of different games I've used and they're they're very similar in their mechanics. One is called Telestrations, which is probably the more well-known one, where someone starts with a word, they draw it, then they pass it that 
the next person has to guess what word it is. The next person has to draw based on the word that's been guessed, right? And it's kind of a, a, a visual version of uh, the telephone game, right? And the other one is called Draw Your Own Conclusions, which is a lot of fun. So you get a, a again, it's a drawing game. So you get an, a, something that you're supposed to draw. However, everyone in your group is only allowed one shape. And the, so it might be a like sliver moon shape. It might be a star. It might be a square. And you can only draw five of those. And so you add them and you're trying to build shapes that the next people can use to keep building so that you can build the picture that, that you're supposed to have so that by the time it gets to the end, the person can guess it. Um, and so both of them are about collaboration. Both of them are about thinking very explicitly about how you fit into the bigger picture, particularly draw your own conclusions. Um, and, and Telestrations is also about, you know, sort of like thinking carefully, reading the cues, being a real team player. So I've I've used both of these games to, again, sort of talk about the, the roles we play in groups, the fact that all voices matter, the fact that we actually need groups to be consisting of members who are, who are required to contribute different elements, right? Like draw your own conclusions and just the idea of listening to others. And you're so right, Lauren, that, that what, what these games often allow us to do is to to talk about these things without preaching, right? Because we're showing them in action. Because students are playing these games, if you if you already have their groups and they maybe have an outside of class group project and in class, in the groups, you have them playing together. One of the nice things that happens is that they begin to associate those group members, not just with the bad things, quote, bad things of the group project, but with fun and enjoying each other and having a good time. So one of the things it does is it just builds in some low stakes opportunities for interacting without there being a huge grade involved. And I've noticed when I have the opportunity to do that with my students, the groups are often more functional um, and they're a little less uh, intense. Um, and then the reflection moment can come in a number of ways. You could um, do these games before you announce the different roles or ask the students to determine their roles in the group or to decide how they want to kind of break things down. Or you can do it after they know their roles, um, after the groups have been formed and, and ask them to just spend a few minutes talking through the game with each other, right? Like what strengths did they notice? Um, have they discovered that one of their teammates is a fantastic artist? Is there a way that they can incorporate that in? So there's just a lot of ways that it allows the groups to sort of self-calibrate. And I think that's really exciting. I've also used games in technical communication. And so this is actually um, where I use a variety of games. So the ones that uh, are probably most well known are Apples to Apples, Forbidden Island and Pandemic. But I also bring in um, some indie games. So especially games that I've backed on Kickstarter just because it's fun to kind of give them a little extra promotion, but it's it's also fun for people to see like that they can be game creators too without you know having to work at Mattel or something like that. But the issue that I was trying to address was just teaching the different levels of complexity in technical writing and technical communication. Because a lot of times, and especially when you have students writing instructions, they haven't quite gotten to the point where they understand that they know something so well that they're skipping major parts of mm -hmm. the instruction writing. And so one of the things that it, it really helps with is to have them sit down and go through the actual instructions of the game, because like something like apples to apples, almost everybody in every class that I've taught has played it. Mm -hmm. And so they really know that game. But when I pull out the instructions, 
maybe a quarter of them have actually read how you're supposed to play it. And so having them go through the instructions and then going from something that is really simple, like apples to apples, even when you add on all of the like extra things you can do with mm-hmm. that game, it's still pretty pretty straightforward going from that to something like forbidden island where the the concept and the goal is straightforward but you have a lot of more mechanics to work with to something like pandemic where you've got some complex <laughs> role-playing instructions that you have to get into as well and so teaching those different levels of complexity so looking at the games that were published by big name brands but also looking at that level of complexity through some of the indie games because some of the indie games do not have good instructions mm-hmm. um and actually some of the published games don't have good instructions either mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. um looking at the differences there and kind of um understanding oh okay so i can't just tell um, my person when i'm writing my instruction set on how to tune a cello to turn the knob for the a string i have to tell them clockwise or counterclockwise um, and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, it, it's also just a really good way of bringing technical communication into the real into their real life sphere. Because you know, some some students are taking uh, tech com because they couldn't get into business com, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and but and they need another advanced communication class so they can um, be be done with their gen eds. But a lot of people, when they first come into the tech comm class, they think it's going to be all engineering type stuff. It's all going to be like diagrams and stuff that's really hard to comprehend and that sort of thing. And so this is a good way of kind of breaking through maybe some of that anxiety um, that technical communication has to necessarily be something that's really hard and really, you know, you have to be really good at science to even be able to do it and it allows them to kind of see something that a lot of them have dealt with before is technical communication still. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what I like about this um, is that focusing on the instructions and sort of the step-by-step process would also be a perfect thing for almost any STEM class that's going to have labs, right? To kind of teach students how to read lab protocols um, before they start messing with um, chemicals and and some of the more expensive lab equipment, just kind of expecting them to to think about, okay, how do you read instructions? What information do you still need? Um, And a lot of newer games also have started adding that like, want to skip the reading and they're like watch our video um yeah. and so you could also have i think you could also use this as a way to help students think about oral visual communication or even multimodal communication right how does what we do in writing differ from what we put into a, an oral form so there's a lot of applications for this um besides the super scary sounding tech com <laughs> phrase yeah and and when you get to kind of for this one the reflection moment when you get to that um, point where you're, you know, saying, okay, we've spent all of this time playing these games and looking at their instructions. Now we're going to take it into something else. And what I want you to do is annotate instructions. So that's kind of the reflection moment I have in that class. Um, and it's really cool because you'll see them start to, uh, think about things in terms of genre, um, which can be also sort of hard to, hard to get people going with that there are even different genres of instructions and so like a lot of games they'll kind of start off with um if not a narrative then basically the game creator is kind of talking to you Mm -hmm. and 
setting up the context of the game for you. And so then if you give them like instructions on how to install some software or how to uh, tune a cello or something like that, and they don't have that, um, that voice talking to them at the beginning, they're going to start pointing that out and that's going to be part of their annotations. Um, it happens in almost, it's happened in almost every um, comm class that I've done this in. And so, um, so again, it's that tie-in of like, yes, we played this game, but there was a purpose for it. Um, and here's how you can now apply it. If you're not ready or willing or quite able to afford, um, you know, multiple games, because it can begin to add up. Um, there are also a lot of improv activities that you can do that don't really require um, anything to purchase. And I think improv sometimes gets a bad name or a bad rap because people either associate it with like no one wanting to play or the like super diehard people that are like playing improv games even when you're like, please just talk to me <laughs> normally. Um, but improv games just, you know, if everyone is sort of at the beginner basic level, uh, work really nicely. Um, and so there's everything from um, there's one game that I play where my students, I ask my one student to give the first line, first sentence of a story, and one student to give the, the last sentence of a story. Um, and then everyone else has to fill in so that eventually they're standing in a row so that it's a complete narrative. So people have to think about like, okay, well, if the story begins with the cat walked across the street and it ends with, and then the world ended, which oftentimes it is that dramatic. How do we get from the cat walked across the street? So the world ended and so they're really having to think about where they fall in i've also played a game called color where um, someone is telling you a story and then you get to say stop color and as long as as i say color uh, the other person has to elaborate and so they have to provide more details about whatever they were talking about and then i can say okay and then they can continue the story and so that really gets them to be thinking about details and what details are relevant and how to um be able to on the spot elaborate um, of course, there's the famous sort of, uh, you know, yes and, right, where where you're engaging in a, a dialogue that's purposefully trying to be reciprocal, right, so that you're always open to what the other person is doing. And then there are, in case, um, you know, you would like something more tangible, there are things that allow you to have some sort of, like, improv or um, sort of starter ideas. Uh, one of my favorite things that Lauren introduced me to, and now she's created a monster, um, is the story deck engine. And it, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so bad because when they announced their, um, like their new one, I was like, must have it all. Um, anyway, but what it is, is it's essentially these little prompts that your students then have to, to write on. Um, and it helps them to kind of helps them with the characters and the, some of the narrative points and some of the items. Um, and even if you're not teaching a creative writing class, just getting them in the habit of um, thinking about the writing that they do through narrative, right? Because everything we do is a narrative um, and getting them used to just immediately putting stuff down on the page instead of sitting there for several hours. So this addresses, again, lots of issues. Um, I use that first game where the students um, are writing the stories sentence by sentence to talk about the importance of transitions um, in my in my technical writing, right? Like in my um, critical writing. It helps to communicate the relationship between reader versus writer-based writing, um, the importance of the elaboration of detail, the significance of revision, all of this stuff. And so it also creates a community because they're kind of all doing it together. It's a really good sort of team building as a larger um, conglomerate. Uh, but it also just helps students think about the importance of narrative. And even if you are in STEM 
or social sciences or the humanities, no matter what field you're in, we are about communicating narratives. It's just that some narratives have more swords and dragons and some have more um, chemical equations, right? But no matter what, we're doing that. And what I've done this with uh, in terms of the reflection moment is I've asked them to bring out a draft of a paper and say, okay, now that we've talked about how important transitions are, let's go back through and look at how every one of your paragraphs just begins with like, firstly, secondly, and conclusion. How could we make stronger transitions? Or now that you know um, the significance of detail, how could we make your two-page paper turn into a five-page paper? And you can do this for presentations just as easily as for papers. So I really think it's a very versatile uh, form of, of games for learning. Can I add one to, to that list of improv? So I have a listening activity that I do with absolutely every class because my point to them is someone taught you how to read. Someone taught you probably how to read and to write. Um, who that was is different for all of us, but generally no one teaches us how to listen. Interesting. And so um, what I do is I just ask for a few volunteers and um, so let's say I get four, um, I send three of them out into the hall and then I tell the one that stays in the class, okay, you don't have to do anything, just sit back, relax and listen. And I tell them an overly complicated, detailed story about a kid who wants to be a candy shop maker mm. or a candy maker. And it's got lots of um, superfluous details like the uh the flavor of taffy that the store owner won a prize for and stuff like that um but it's still a quick story it's over in like a minute and a half and so once i read it to them i'm like okay do you got it you understand the story and usually they're like yeah i got it and so i bring one person back in and i say okay um timmy now you tell the story to Susie." and there's always a look of panic because timmy's like wait what <laughs> and so They'll tell the story um, and, uh, you know, lather, rinse, repeat for the rest of the students. And when I get to the last student, I give them a pop quiz about all of the details that were in the story. And no one's ever, <laughs> ever passed it wow. because the point of this is showing us how we listen. Because the first time, um, most of the time, sometimes um, the order gets switched around if you have a student who's really into details. But the first time, generally, they're listening for the narrative. They're listening for the overall plot of the story. And then um, and they'll tell that uh, what they can of it to the next person. But since the next person knows what they're about to have to do, they zero in on the details. And so they're trying to listen to um, student one for every single detail they can. And they'll neglect the plot and so um we talk about listening to understand versus listening to just remember and recite and um listening for uh, listening to answer or to like continue our argument but it's a pretty fun little quick improv game that you can do that's fantastic um, yeah because what yeah. you're also talking about is metacognition right like mm -hmm. because students don't know how to study for something if they don't know what they're being asked to give back right um, so that's fantastic. I want, if you have, I want your story and your quiz so that I can start yeah, doing that. I have it. And, Excellent. and if you are, um, not of the creative writing persuasion, a really easy way to still do this is to just go get a fairy tale, like Goldilocks and the three bears. And just every once in a while, like print it out and in certain places, add a little detail to it. So like, um, you know, Goldilocks ate 
mama bear's porridge and it was strawberry flavored and papa bear's porridge was blueberry flavored and baby bear's porridge was just right and it was honey flavored um so like stuff like that so it's really easy even if you're not a writer to put this together that's terrific so in addition to to more like traditional board games or or games that like have rules and they come in a box and stuff um we can also use toys uh as games and so talk to us about lego Lego day is my composition student's favorite day. Um, and so the the joy I see in their eyes when I bust out the boxes of Legos for them. Um, but basically uh, what I was trying to address in my class was that students a lot of times when we're talking about multimodal composition um, and using, you know, if you tell them to use pictures in your essay or use video in your essay, they see those things as extras rather than an integral part of the communication process. And so what I wanted to do was to have a situation where the visuals were the whole point and also the only thing they had. And so I bring in Legos for one day and I let them play for about 15 minutes to get it out of their system. Um, But then I told them, okay, your 15 minutes of play is up. You should have all like figured out how you like to put your Legos together as a team, come up with something that you want to build and build it. Um, and obviously I give them all like different types of Legos. So they all have, you know, um, different, uh, size pieces to choose from so they can build whatever they want. Um, and some people they'll just build like a tower quote unquote. And, you know, it's basically straight up and there's maybe some arms sticking off of it, but some I've had somebody build a windmill. I had somebody build a cowboy with gun pointed at you. Um, yeah. So there's, there's lots of different uh, things. Someone builds a spaceship. So they build this thing and said, okay, now you've built it. What I want you to do is create a guide on how to build that without using any words. All you have are pictures And uh, most of them have smartphones, but I do bring in some digital cameras just in case, um, you know, someone, none of them, you know, all of them broke their smartphone over the weekend in a group or something like that. Um, And so uh, they, all they have to work with are pictures and they have to put together a how-to guide on how to build whatever their creation was. And so this is good for two things. Number one, just like in the moment, what the actual activity does is it reinforces some of the note-taking things that we talk about because they have to be able to remember what they did to make instructions. And a lot of times when they take that thing apart, they're like, oh no, how do we do this again themselves? And so they have to figure out how to reconstruct it. And then also they have to figure out how to tell people with visuals only how to reconstruct it. Um, So the reflection day is actually the next class. So I bring back the Legos and each group has their own tub and each tub is labeled. So I know who got what pieces. Um, And so I bring back the Legos, but I give different groups, different tubs, and they each get their, uh, get each other's guides and a different group has to put um, your group's project together. And even in the cases where they're just build, they've just built a tower, a lot of times it's hard because they can't see this one little corner piece in the foundation. And so um, they, their stuff is falling over and that sort of thing. And so we take time to reflect just with, within our teams and small group and then within the class, how uh, visuals can be a really important part of, um, of the communication process. 
And there is an actual, it's like one of my dreams to, to, to get to complete this training. There's something called Lego serious play. Um, that is like a 20 year old method of, of training because this isn't something that Lauren's just like, I had a whole bunch of Legos. What am I going to do with them? Or Lego. <laughs> Apparently the plural for Lego is still Lego. A whole Lego. bunch of Lego, mm-hmm. um, bricks, right? There we go. That's the plural. Um, instead it's, um, people have for, for 20 years of recognized time and for much longer than that and said, you know, this can be used for visual communication. This can be used for, um, a lot of people use it for, um, therapeutic, uh, classes and to, and to do reflections. Um, and so just like Lego bricks can build just about anything, you can use Lego bricks for just about anything, um, and have it be a really important and significant learning method. Have you ever used other toys? Um, so, uh, I'm about to, um, so I, I, this is the first semester that I've gotten to teach social media as a concept. Um, I've done it a little bit for my pop culture classes, but usually I'm, I'm talking about how people communicate on social media. Um, but for my digital storytelling class, one of the things that I'm bringing up are the, um, the different genres of different platforms. And so we're going to talk about Instagram. Um, and I think everybody's pretty familiar with like influencers and the fitness Instagrams and those sorts of things. But one of my favorite genres of Instagram is the Barbie soap opera. <laughs> and so it's just lots of different pictures of like Barbies doing stuff. So it'll be like two Barbies having brunch or something like that. But then there'll be this whole saga that continues in subsequent posts that's written out in the caption section. Um, and it's, delightful and and one of the weirder parts of the internet that's just like why is this a thing first of all and why is it popular second of all um and so i'm probably going to be bringing in um uh, some barbies for the students to play with um just because one of the things that we're trying to do is uh trying to hammer home the point that content creation is not easy so even when you're looking at something as uh, on the surface, silly or trivial as a Barbie soap opera, a lot of work went into it. And so um, getting them to understand digital uh, content creation through some of the fun, goofy parts of oh, the that's internet. fantastic. Mm-hmm. So for our next episode, we're going to keep talking about game-based learning because as you can guess by the, the fact that these episodes have been a little longer. Um, there's a lot to talk about. We're really still like skimming the surface, um, but we, we want to make it so that you feel like um, if you hear something that you're like, yes, this is this is something I could do. This is something I'd be excited to do, um, that you know that you can reach out in order to Lauren and then to me um, to talk about <laughs> how to do this. And Because Lauren truly is. I, I learned so much from you about this every time uh, we talk. So next time we're going to shift from the, the games for learning, which is taking, um, you know, these games where the, the narrative of the game, if there is even a narrative, um, is not really what you're focusing on, right? You're focusing on the skills that it's offering, um, or the strategies that are involved, but we're going to move from that to what's known as serious play. Um, and Lauren in like 15 seconds, what would you say, how would you explain what serious play is so people can get excited for next time's episode? Serious play are serious games, things like simulations, anything where you are delivering a particular um, serious or I guess less fun type of actual content to a student um, through a game. So quick example, 
if you are teaching uh, communication with families and patients to nurses, there's a simulation for that. So that would be considered a serious game. Excellent. So uh, we hope that you will join us for that next episode on serious play. Um, and in the meantime, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to Lauren or me. Lauren, is there anything else you want to add? That's all from me. Okay, excellent. Thank you.